Welcome back to the Path of Longevity show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff. I'm so pleased to have uh, an old and uh, a friend of mine, Stephen Porges, who's a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University. He's the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium, and he's also a professor at the University of North Carolina. And most importantly, he is the creator of the polyvagal theory, um, a, a brilliant um, synthesis and, and uh, integration of how our nervous autonomic nervous system functions. And we're going to talk about that and how it relates to aging and longevity today. And Stephen, it's such a pleasure to have you here and to see you. I've been, um, as I was thinking about us talking today, I was reminiscing my, with myself about this wonderful week that we spent yep. together with uh, Peter Levine, uh, just brainstorming in the yep. Caribbean. What a what a wonderful concept! Yeah, well, well, it's it's a place and an experience of emergence. So it's where that's how ideas flow when when you feel uh, the term I use safe enough to be who you are. Right. And that's that's how creativity expresses itself. Wonderful yes. memories. Yes, thank you. And 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 your how is your wife? Uh, my my wife is fine, and I see in the background a picture of your wife. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So again, welcome. And um, I'd like to start by having you for this audience just um, talk about the polyvagal theory and its evolutionary relevance um, yeah. to emotions and. Well, we can even focus it on health because health is focused on end organs. So it talks about the heart, the liver, the gut, and you go to different specialists when you have a manifestation of a problem. Polyvagal theory is really a theory about the neuroregulation of those organs, the neuroregulation of the autonomic nervous system. And it's something that's almost oblique to medicine. Medicine is very focused on organ damage. And but not focused on organ regulation by the nervous system. So we can visualize or conceptualize the issue of an exercise, like we would look at muscles, or are we really about the neuroregulation of those muscles? So what is exercise? It's challenging those muscles, but more important, allowing recovery to occur after the challenge. So the muscles build us a more resilience. Well, the neuroregulation of our visceral organs also develops a degree of resilience. Now, the polyvagal theory basically emphasizes that our autonomic state, our autonomic organs are really shifting in when we are in different states. We actually have different autonomic states, and they're shifting in a very adaptive uh, sequence. They have a certain, let's say, script or agenda. When we're safe, our nervous system supports homeostatic functions. So the autonomic nervous system does its growth, health, and restoration. And that, of course, will influence longevity. But when we're under challenges, uh, we retract that neural homeostatic regulation and we divert our resources for metabolic demands like running or fleeing or fighting or working. So people talk about being under stress or being anxiety, anxious. It really, they're saying their autonomic nervous system is mobilized, it's detected threat, and it's really, re, it's diverting its resources. And finally, there's another neural circuit 
it's basically it's the last resort it's the uh, despair it's hopelessness it's really a nervous system in withdrawal and severe let's use it metaphorically depressed depression and that is where our bodies literally stop functioning and we pass out or we uh, uh, reduce our metabolic activity and we lose all source of energy uh the interesting part is the three levels or three states that i've mentioned a safe calm socially engaging spontaneously friendly co-regulatory uh think of the mother and the infant state enables all that homeostatic function to work but that is a uniquely newer mammalian circuit in our own evolutionary heritage underneath it are more quote primitive that means that evolved earlier and shared with virtually all other vertebrates is this fight flight sympathetic mobilization system so the calming is this newer what i call eventual vagal circuit and then below it is the sympathetic fight flight but underneath that is the oldest portion of your autonomic nervous system it's also vagal it comes from the back end of the brain cell the dorsal vagus and basically it shuts us down and if we didn't need much oxygen it's a great defense uh mechanism but what are mammals mammals are oxygen hungry organisms so they can't shut down they need to bring air in so polyvagal theory basically identifies those three structures three circuits and then explains that they're triggered by reflexes within the nervous system that that are called neuroception nervous system detection of safety threat or life threat safety danger or life threat and you get this circuit you get this massive reaction and we all know that we get a trigger of uh hypervigilance look around when a loud noise or thunder that's moving that's neuroception but we also know that a baby who's crying whose mother engages and uses a prosodic voice stops crying that's neuroception of safety because mammals unlike their reptilian ancestors have the capacity of having a neuroception of safety so they can turn off their defenses and what does that enable on a social level it enables attachment co-regulation trust but on a physiological level it facilitates health growth and restoration mm, so yeah. basically that's that's the nutshell i'm sorry to elaborate so much on it well um your elaboration of this concept has really created a revolution in a lot of uh, therapy programs particularly mm-hmm. around trauma mm-hmm. uh, in which the most primitive uh, mechanism is engaged um <clears throat> Does that deeper level of sometimes referred to as the freeze response, um, is that only engaged with people in trauma or is it is it found in in all of us? Well, this is actually manifesting. Yeah, well, here here's the interesting thing Uh, in in my search to try to figure this all out. I uh, made certain guesses and then recently I went back and. Uh, now that we have computer searches for, in terms of science, we can literally see that our hand searches that were done in the 90s are still valid, or did I miss some things? Well, I inferred exactly what's there, but I missed some studies from the late 1970s. And they found out that there were species, mammalian species differences in the sensitivity of stimulating the dorsal vagus. So they put electrodes in these mammalian species, and they found out 
that animals of prey who freeze had an abundance of unmyelinated dorsal vagal cardioinhibitory fibers, meaning that if you stimulate that dorsal vagus, they froze. So that mechanism was there in a prevalent mechanism is prevalent in certain species like rats, rabbits, guinea pigs. However, a species of prey like dogs and cats, you stick the electrode in, no slowing of the heart rate, no freezing, but it affects blood pressure and of course it will affect the gut. So they're literally protected from shutting down. Now, when we go in to the human, and this is really what you, your real question is about, we find out that the kids who die of sudden infant death syndrome uh, have fewer of these ventral myelinated vagal fibers. And we find out that preterm babies have prevalence of bradycardia. You know, so it's like they go into freeze. So they don't have that newer mammalian protective ventral vagal system. They have tachycardia, and then from there, they just go into this shutting down. And for babies, it's potentially lethal. And that was really the motivation of the theory, because I call that the vagal paradox. How could the vagus both uh, protect you and calm you and serve your health, growth, and restoration? Yet, when going into this uh, slowing of heart rate, this dorsal vagal response, how could it kill you? And the answer was very simple. There were two different vagal circuits. It was one wire with different it was a conduit with different wires in it, and they had different functions. Now, the real serious question for humans is, are we predators or prey species? And the other question of, about that is, what have we done in the developmental process that would facilitate one or the other? And so we know that uh, traumatic history uh, affects this vagal regulation of the ventral vagus. And we also know that, you know, malnutrition, hypoxia uh, can disrupt the myelination of the circuit. So we don't know whether the propensity of people to shut down who represent a significant portion of those who've experienced severe trauma, whether there are antecedents to that, meaning there was a, a threshold issue, they didn't have the resilience on board. It's not an intentional behavior. It's that whether or not they had the neural resource or were they in a state that potentiated this. So I am still, in a sense, trying to gain enough information. I would say that we potentially are a prey species. And and I think that comes from this uh, confusion in our nervous system of a, a need to give up vigilance but give up vigilance in, the, in a safe setting because it's meta vigilance and is metabolically costly. We can't maintain a uh, hyper vigilance. We can't maintain fight or flight. So metabolically, the, the, uh, let's say the uh, vectors are pushing us into immobilizing and we seek an environment, meaning a trusted individual where we can give that up or we seek a dog where we give up our hyper vigilance and then relax. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm still, curious about the distribution in humans and whether we are predator or prey. And there's a possibility that there's a distribution, meaning that there are some who are and some who are not. Well, in my experience, there is a sort of like a bias toward vigilance, um, where um, the tendency for all of us is to look for the danger, which is an evolutionary 
uh, benefits, so to speak. But it seems to, that that gets us into trouble yeah. in terms of balance and the mm. impact on our health. So I, I would revise that. I think this is an extremely important point because you're really asking what is our default? Right. Is our default to be uh, vigilant, to be in a state of defense, or is our default to be safe in, in the arms of another? The default is to be safe in the arms of another if and only if there are cues of safety. So we, in a sense, recruit our entire repertoire of neural function when we're safe. Right. And the issue is when we're not, the system goes into defense, like what you're describing. But the problem we have, and this is societal and civilization history, is that we need to respect that we can't be in that hypervigilant state all the time. Mm -hmm. So we need to respect that it's not wrong, it's not bad to be vigilant or to be involved, to be attentive, to work hard, to exercise, to do all these wonderful things. But we need sufficient time to co-regulate meaning we give up our desire and need to seek safety because we are now in a safe context to allow our bodies to function. I have conceptualized that as sociality acting as a neuromodulator. So we have separated in our health world social social prescriptions or social behavior versus real medical problems the answer is with the evolution of uh the with the polyvagal theory where that ventral vagus what actually happened it went on a migration the cells of origin that create heart rate slowing move ventrally from the back of the brain stem to the front where they became involved in the nerves that regulate the muscles of the face and head that give us smiling, give us vocalization, affect our ability to extract human voice from background sound. Mm -hmm. So when we move into that ventral vagal state, we hear voices better. Our voices are more prosodic. We communicate to others, cues of safety and trust, and their nervous systems, like the crying baby, calm down. Mm -hmm. But the point of all this statement is that we cannot live in the ventral vagal state forever because there's work to be done but we need uh places and if we again think about the whole uh evolution of civilization going from basically nomadic people living out in the wild and then getting dogs or other animals to serve as the the vigilance uh keepers so that they could sleep and relax to the building of structures. And then we start thinking of what are the structures? There's structures for sleeping, there's structures for eating, and there's structures for doing our personal things. Mm -hmm. And that is because under those three conditions, we have to give up vigilance. Mm -hmm. So the structures became part of that evolution. Then we start looking at what has society done with that, let's say intuitive knowledge. It said, oh, if you're wealthy enough, you can have those structures and be safe. But if you don't have the financial resources, that's tough luck. You know, you, your nervous systems are now vulnerable to all these cues of threat. And if you flip this into a longevity model where what groups of people are really suffering from uh, limited or let's say shortened longevity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and based on that, we're talking about sort of like the requirement for these systems to be in a place of balance. Yeah. Um, 
but given our how our world is working right now, where you have all these different levels of stress, including the pandemic, including you know wars and um, underlying issues, uh, what's your experience of how well we're able to keep those in balance? And in, in uh, uh, I'll tell you, Steve. All, all I keep thinking about, you know, we're survivors. We've been here a while. You know, I'm talking about you and me. I'm not talking about everyone. <laughs> and it's it's like, I, from my perspective, I think patience is the most important thing I've gained over the years. And as opposed to this anxiety about the immediacy, because we see the problem, you see the problem, I see the problem, and we want to do something. But there's a realization that the harder you push, the more difficult it becomes. And this is, again, I would say very polyvagal, because as you push, you're sending cues to others who are vested in their strategies to be defensive. And you don't convince people of your position if they are in a state of defense. Their physiology is not accepting. The real point is that feelings of physiological safety are really meaning our bodies are calm. And the emergent property of that is to trust others and to engage. And that's reciprocal and that builds. So the issue is the world's messed up because we, the, the metaphor that I like, I tend to use is just like the movies, the matrix movies. The Matrix, they're in part right, but let's tell us, tell, let's be honest about what the Matrix is. It's threat cues. We're being bombarded with threat cues, which interferes with us feeling safe enough to be nice enough, to be benevolent enough, to be compassionate enough, and to be healthy enough because our bodies are triggered, if not tricked, into locking into states of threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give us your perspective on the consequences uh, physiologically and with regard to the functioning of the body when this uh, ability to self-regulate gets distorted. Well, let's let's uh, let's shift our priorities and from self-regulate to co-regulate. And the issue in that statement is that we tend to think that self-regulation is the goal in life and that it is an intentional behavior when in reality our developmental sequence is that we thrive with co-regulation and the consequence of co-regulation is the ability to self-regulate but what does self-regulate mean from a co-regulation to self-regulation it means that we now have developed top-down images of co-regulation that we use to self-regulate so the underlying a message was that we were safe with someone and we were able to make others feel safe. And that became, uh, in a sense, the visualization that we use when we're challenged. So uh, the the part of it, we're in a world that doesn't understand that the true value is not in resources or money. The true value, I'm going to, basically, it's, it, it's a term I'm now using, the true value is in being accessible to others. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It means that we send cues of engagement, cues that others can trust us. And when their bodies become accessible through our voice, through our face, through our gestures, mm-hmm. they reciprocate. And now we benefit from what they are doing to us. If you have pets, you're doing that all the time. 
when you have a children, a child in a good family understands that a safe child, a child who trusts his parents is a child that will innately have greater flexibility in the challenging world. We have been brainwashed into believing that certain learning strategies, tough learning or tough, whatever they want, tough love, um, will retune us to deal with the true challenges of life. Instead, they retune us to have low thresholds of trust in others. Mm-hmm. Very well put. Very well put. I like to um, refer to ha- this in terms of self-fulfilling prophecies. So mm-hmm. like when I'm talking with clients, I will let them know that if they go into a social gathering or a business gathering and they are um, expecting to be judged, uh, they're concerned about negative mm-hmm. consequences of the interactions that in fact they walk in and uh the tone of their voice and their facial expressions are going to uh, cause an effect in how they are perceived, experienced by others, which will actually result in that self-fulfilling prophecy. Can you explain the mechanism? Well, the mechanism is, I mean, you explained it and described beautifully, uh, that our nervous system responds to certain cues reflexively. It's, it's a, and there's a reason why it's reflexive. That's how the species survived. It was able to cue others of conspecifics of our own species that we were safe enough to come close to. And what that led to was cooperation, friendships, trust, a division of resources and responsibilities. So everyone in our world or any other person was not a threat after we got these cues. So it was able to turn off our defenses. And there's obviously the health benefits, but there's also the societal cooperation. And there's a biological uh, uh, evolutionary biologist, Theodorus Dobzinski, who basically uh, uh, gives us an argument that goes against the survival of the fittest as being the strongest and most aggressive in saying that at times, the gentlest are the fittest. And I think we need to really take that to heart in this very, uh, in a world that says uh, acquisition and power are success. But in the world of mental health, we all know that those who have resources are not, not necessarily happy or feel successful. And the that gives us a real interesting insight into the fact that resources or the acquisition of resources or stuff is not what our nervous system wants. Our nervous system really requests and screams for uh, trusting relationships. But back to your scenario, the intonation of voice, if we go back to the mother and the crying baby, the uh, prosodic, the intonation of the maternal voice triggers physiological responses. We, we published a study this past year uh, using what's called uh, the still face paradigm. It was developed by Etronic. It's where the mother is interacting with the baby. It's a six to nine month old baby interacting. And then she freezes her face. No smile, nothing. But even if I did that to you, within a few seconds, you start feeling what's going on here. Is he with me? You know, did I do something wrong? You know, and that's how the baby feels. The baby starts to reach out to in a sense comfort and then the baby loses it, you know, mm-hmm. off going into tantrum. Now, what happens after that was two minutes, those very long two minutes, 
is that the mother then re-engages and uses a voice and tries to re-invite the child to calm down. Now, if you look at the prosodic features with an analysis of the vocalizations, there's a degree or a range of how prosodic the maternal voices are. But it ends up being a linear regression. The more prosodic the mother's voice is, the more the baby's heart rate slows after the disruption, the more dis, uh, disruptive behaviors are diminished. So in a pre-verbal infant, that infant is responding not to the words, but to the intonation. Now, if you have dogs or cats or horses, you know the same thing. You're doing the same thing. Yet we are a culture that is so vested in language, the word itself, and not how the words are delivered. So back to your scenario, the way we deliver the words have great impact on the people who are there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to distinguish between hearing versus listening. When the words are prosodic, we are really recruiting nerves that regulate our face and actually retract uh, the muscles, tense the muscles in the middle ear, the uh, where there are little bones. And what that does is it tightens the eardrum like a tympanic, it's a tympanic membrane, but it's like a tympany drum. And now low frequency predator sounds bounce off the ear and human voice comes in. So often if you're giving the cues that aren't really safe cues to another, they're not even able to extract what you're saying. They're responding to the fact that you're talking but they're not pulling the words in. Now, we all remember this when we were younger and we'd go into bars and talk to people and we could hear every word. But now, when we go into those same places, we have difficulty hearing human voice. And that's giving us the age-related changes in the flexibility of those middle ear muscles in extracting cues of safety. Because when you were in the beer, in the bar, and you were engaging someone, all the background sounds functionally disappeared and you were now engaged to, with the person. And that is when a person walks into a room to, to meet people, they're doing, they're, they're in a sense presenting who they are. And if they're presenting a high, let's say a person who is not a safe or accessible person, it's going to be in their voice. It's going to be in their posture, in, in their gestures. Right. But all of that happens unconsciously, but even though we, that's what we're responding to. Yeah, but here's the trick of the trade here. It, 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 it's, that's why I called it neuroception because it was much more of a reflex, but there's something called introception. So your reaction to someone's, uh, to your, okay, let's say you have a neuroceptive response. Someone comes in and you get this visceral reaction. You're aware of the visceral reaction. The interesting part is what do you make of it? Mm-hmm. And you know, what type of narrative do you make? Do you say, Oh, Hey, don't like that guy. Or you say, that guy, uh, that's interesting. I had this visceral response. I'm aware of my visceral response. Is there something going on in that guy's day? Is that person, you know, is it a bad day? Is he anxious? Uh, rather than taking it personally, and this is how we tend to do, we tend to get that visceral response. And I use the term, ride that pony. We get that visceral response. It mobilizes us. And now we are justified in reacting negatively to that person. And if we just kind of like sat still and used our body as this wonderful detector and explored it with a sense of enthusiasm and curiosity, we would say, wow, that's really interesting. And this uh, addresses how we make 
jump to conclusions yeah. In, yeah. In, uh, and interpretations, making assumptions mm-hmm. where we're better off in these kinds of circumstances yeah. to sit back and and say, you know, let me wait to see what's going to happen rather than jumping to conclusions yeah. based on wrong uh, stimuli. A- absolutely. Yeah. It, it's the narratives that get us into trouble. Right. <laughs> and I, I always, I do this, you know, I said, stop. <laughs> but listen, we live in a world and we're very conditioned to respond to patterns. And that's part of things that happen with development and aging. We get locked into our response to certain patterns. And in the trauma world, we call that triggers. They become triggers and triggers are hard to just stop and say, wow, that triggered me. Isn't that interesting? As yeah. opposed to I'm triggered. Like I get that stuff out of my world real quickly. I, I so agree with what you're, what you're saying right now. I want to get into that, but be, before I do, can you, um, share how you um, explain how the dysregulation, let's call it because we're going too much into danger and not enough into safety, has an impact on chronic illness, for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's really, uh, the word too much is going to have to be always personalized because uh, we can disrupt homeostatic function by going into danger or turning off our homeostatic uh, needs uh, for periods of time, but our body needs recovery. So we have to be, in a sense, aware of what our bodies can tolerate, and there's going to be ranges in that. So that part, it becomes a real, I would say, an important uh, marker for us to understand. So it's not like we're in danger too much. We have to be aware that our autonomic nervous system shifted state. So we might just have a bad day and feel bad and we feel viscerally and we don't want to see people, but we have to see people or we have to get this grant in or deadline or paper. It's always going to be something. And our body just doesn't have that time to relax. And we need to structure relaxation. We really need to know what our bodies need, which is not necessary to drink alcohol, which is going to just dumb those feedback loops. But in a sense, in environments where the demands don't exist. And I think there's been danger during the pandemic because we gave up vacations. It's not even in my worldview anymore. Vacation doesn't exist. Uh, and that's only a three-year period. So the notion of we work hard and we play hard is almost uh, messed up because so many people work hard, don't play at all, and now they're working hard at home and it's remote. So they have access to laptops and work all the time. So their nervous system doesn't have this neural predictability of giving up threat cues. Mm -hmm. So our nervous system really thrives on expectancies. So we can expect work, work hard, but if we expect uh, relaxation, social engagement, like we going out to eat is really the interesting neural exercise because it's not only totally social, but it's ingestive while being social. And the nerves for ingestion are the same nerves we use for sociality. So we love to eat because it stimulates the same thing when we're in a social setting. And if we are stimulated by the social environment, we tend to eat less. We, you know, so we aren't using the food as a state regulator. We're using the nourishment of sociality. So the part that we need to learn 
is that the world has these threat cues. That's part of life. But we need to really structure times and, and context where we can be safe. And, you know, whether it's in our own home or with some friends uh, and even the notion of rituals. So like religions and different groups always had rituals or cultures and the rituals were really an expectancy of something that was predictable. So they it, it took away the uncertainties and uncertainty to our nervous system can be threat unless the uncertainty is structured within a safe environment. And when it's structured in a safe environment, it's an amusement park. So we, we love that. We love the uh, unexpected, but we know we're not going to get hurt. But the unexpected in a part of town that you're not familiar with is very challenging to your nervous system. Yeah. And so, again, can you share how... Um not going into the recovery mode, the safety triggered by safety, how that leads to um, Mm. the dysregulation and chronic illness. Okay. So we have, we're going to first talk about the mechanism. If you don't go into that safe mode, what happens? Then we're going to talk about what is chronic illness. Let's Mm -hmm. kind of separate those two. Okay. So if we don't go into the safe state, our nerve, the feedback loops of the nervous system regulating those organs doesn't have a chance to do its servicing because it's been getting signals. Don't service the organs because we need the organs to support our defenses, mobilization, metabolically costly events. The body didn't get the message that it's now time to recover because we have learned over time to keep pushing our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and it says not listening to the feet. So people will talk about listening, listening to your body. And then we go into the world of trauma and we realize that people who have experienced severe trauma, they don't even feel their body. Their bodies are numb. So we start putting this all together and realizing that turning off the feedback loops of the system is synonymous with, or numbness is synonymous with turning off the feedback loops. I don't feel my body. Now my body is totally a slave to me, as opposed to driving me. Mm-hmm. So the first part is that our nervous system, our bodies need to be in states of safety so that they can service, so they can recover, they can repair. And this really is a model of, uh, it says medicine doesn't totally integrate this model. And it's very interesting because in 1949, a very famous Swiss physician got the Nobel Prize. He was a physiologist physician. His name was Walter Hess. He got the Nobel Prize on describing how the brain regulated the visceral organs. Now I'm going to ask anyone who listens to our dialogue here to ask their physician if they learned anything about the brain regulating the organs, or let's say, I would say their physician, uh, their internist or their cardiologist or their gastroenterologist uh, about how the nervous system Im- impacts on the organ of specialty that they're doing. And they will tell you they don't know very much about it. And the reason is they weren't taught anything about it. It's not in the medical school curriculum. It's just not there. So neuroregulation of organs isn't there. And that results now in a whole new category of illnesses called functional disorders. Mm-hmm. And what that is really saying, we can't measure in the end organ the disease, but the, the organ is not 
you're having symptoms in that organ. Now, what a polyvagal theory model would say is that first you disrupt the neural organization or neural regulation of the organ, and then the organ without the feedback loops working will develop organ disease. It's mm-hmm. that sequence. But if it's in the level of functional, it means it's neural. And the intervention, again, from a polyvagal informed strategy is can you port cues of safety into that nervous system to move it out of this chronic state of defense, which operationally is disrupting the homeostatic functions. So we can see literally the progression of illness as the metaphor of that progression is the duration of disruption of homeostatic function or the disconnecting of the brain from the brain regulation of the visceral organ. You're separating the two. So even in a sense, these mind-body or brain-body orientations at least acknowledge that the nervous system is involved in our visceral experiences. Yeah, and this is such a common experience in um, people visiting their physician because they have these symptoms, very upsetting symptoms, and the the diagnostics do not find what the problem is. They don't find what's wrong. And yeah. of course, what you're what you're sharing with us is the reason and where where the problem stems yeah. from. Yeah. So I developed the new metric. I developed it in 1990s, but I resurrected it recently. It's called vagal efficiency, and it looks at uh, the relationship, the dynamic relationship of respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is the index of the ventral vagus on heart rate. So it's really saying, I have this vagal break. How efficient is it? When I turn it off, does the heart rate go up? When I put it back, does it go down? Basically, it's measuring dynamic resilience of that system. And when you look at any individual who carries, or let's say in general, individuals who carry these uh, diffuse diagnoses like dysautonomia, their vagal efficiency is very, very poor, meaning that the systems are no longer uh, tightly linked, meaning that the neuroregulation, the end organ, even though I think I'm, my brain thinks it's manipulating vagal tone, I'm not getting any change in heart rate from it. So it's not helping me uh, uh, move. Now, we found out that people who have abuse histories, not PTSD, but just, let's say, maltreatment, college students, their vagal efficiency is noticeably lower than controls without that. And we noticed that individuals who suffer from these a disorder, one was uh, cyclic vomiting disorder, which is a GI problem. Um, those kids uh, were noticeably different than the controls, in a sense, extremely poor vagal efficiency. And the same thing was found in a sample of individuals with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is hypermobility. And interestingly, uh, the gastroenterologist that I'm working with, uh, she was doing a study using uh, actually vagal nerve stimulation, and I wanted her to tell me who her clients were. What did she know about the people in her in her clinic that they all had gut pain, but I wanted to know more what co- comorbidities. And in her clinic of the adolescents who had gut problems, 51% had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which I thought was a rare syndrome until I saw that. Mm. So the the bottom line is that these, uh, uh, and with Ehlers-Danlos, we're literally able 
from that sample, we could tell who was Ehlers-Danlos just by looking at, at vagal efficiency. So mm-hmm. the system is disrupted. Now, when we get into the notion of chronic health and chronic illness, it becomes the issue is uh, when people get a injury or get a disease, and that's the issue now, chronic illness now has to be differentiated from acute. And this also becomes an issue within medicine because the treatment for acute tends to bleed over into the treatment for chronic. Now, let's let's even talk about long COVID or COVID. COVID is a, is a true threat to the nervous system. It's a pathogen. But long COVID is the symptoms of having COVID persist even though there's no pathogen. Chronic pain is a similar parallel. Uh, the injury has healed, but the body didn't get the message that the injury has healed. And the same thing along COVID. So what happened is that under these challenges to the, to uh, the health of the individual, the nervous system moved into a state of threat, uh, in terms of pain. It's sympathetic excitation, uh, body tenses up and pain is a signal of threat. No, no ambiguity to that. And with an illness, with a with a virus, with a pathogen, you have inflammation, you have fever, you have a, a whole array of bodily reactions, of threat reactions. But in general, when the pathogen, when, it, when the body has won the battle, then the systems normalize again. Now, chronic illnesses, they haven't. Now, from my perspective, what that means is the nervous system didn't get the message. Mm. So this is where we've been actually doing research uh, uh, on this. How do you get the message to the body that it's safe? And a few years back, I developed this acoustic stimulation model, which is called the Safe and Sound Protocol. And uh, some of the insightful uh, providers who actually are using it decide to use it on long COVID. And it's really quite amazing. And what it what the intervention truly is, is the manipulation of acoustic features. It's basically taking uh, vocal music and amplifying the prosodic features of that vocal music, like a mother would calm her baby. So in a sense, the nervous system hears these cues and the nervous system becomes accessible. And so are you saying it modulates yeah. uh, in that way the the autonomic... Yeah, well, it, it, it is, if we take the mother's voice and say, what does it do to the child? The child picks up the intonation of the signals and the baby going from this goes to accessibility, calmness. Now, if we talk about our dogs or cats or horses, it's the same thing. Our intonation of our voice is cueing their nervous systems that we are safe to approach. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, our bodies can trust another body. And so when that cue gets in, the autonomic nervous system shifts from defense state to accessible. And yeah. So let me just check in with you on this, because I'm wondering if based on what you're saying, a person can develop um, their own personal tone that they express Mm. that can help them in that process of regulation. Can I like go, that that's helpful but that's different okay okay this goes back to like what peter levine does with the vu or woo and that is it's stimulating that's also stimulating the ventral vagal circuit but this is cues of safety and not producing safety not producing the, it's listening 
it's the nervous system becoming accessible because it's heard cues. Now, it's the modulation. It's not the tone itself. It's the modulation of it that we, our nervous system feels or interprets as inviting, accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I uh, talk about in, in my own work is how we adapt to our childhood environment. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a completely safe environment, we we sort of learn uh, about danger. And then that sets us up as, a, as adults, um, again, to expect you talked about neuroception, which is, I believe, just under the level of awareness that our nervous system is is tuning into the environment, but it could be sensitized by our child lessons of childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we break that pattern in which, um, before we know it, our body is responding to danger, mm-hmm. even when there may not okay. be any danger? So here's here's the paradox: if you come from that history that you're describing cues of safety have already now become cues of threat because right. they they have moved from cues of accessibility to cues of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So the body says, I'm not going there. And we've watched this with the intervention with people with severe trauma. And that is initially the body can't reject it. So the body goes like this, mm-hmm. but then you have the interoception. The body feels this. And now we perceive that and what happens is that's a trigger in itself. The body feeling vulnerable and the person gets anxious and moves, basically gets out of there, won't, won't tolerate the intervention. I'll give you an example. Uh, we were using the intervention, or I should say a provider was using it in Poland with Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees. And the mother came in and she put the headset on and listened to the prosodic music. She lasted 42 seconds. Before her body says, they got to get out of there. Well, she came out of a war zone. So it was very incompatible for her body to become accessible. <laughs> she had responsibilities to take care of her child. And what the really insightful trauma therapist did was they realized they could work with this. So they did titration at very few seconds. And they used the visceral feedback, the interoception, as a psychoeducational component to now understand what their body and the beauty of the intervention was that it was, it was orthogonal, disparate from the uh, narrative. It was just music. So, and it wasn't a person there. So, so the body going into these defense reactions just by listening to music is profound in terms of a, clinical trajectory because you can see it literally on a cause and effect as a trigger without creating a over uh, overlapping narrative. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how we sort of break out of if we're in a pattern where we're more reactive to danger where um, we spent we're spending more time in fight or flight either because of childhood, lessons and expectations or because of uh, what's going on in the world today or our personal lives that have a lot of different stresses. Um, What would you advise our audience as some of the first steps to help in this regulation? This is, I mean, you're asking the big question. And the big question is, I would say, don't try this at home. Uh, you you need you need a professional person whom with whom you trust 
So the issue on that is you need everything that we're discussing is about how do you give up your defenses? How do you give up your hypervigilance? And you can't do that on your own. You need a context set up for you because you literally have to give your trust to someone to make sure to get into that co-regulatory state. So the, the part of this is that the first part of it is an awareness of what's going on inside you. And we can all uh, do that on our own. We can say, whoa, my body shifted state. Uh, now, the real question is, can we interrupt those reflexes? Can we uh, diffuse them? So can we get out of the narratives? We know we're going into narratives when we get that, but can we get out of that? And that's where I would say insightful therapists uh, trust, trustworthy insightful therapists can literally titrate people by allowing them to be, quote, triggered, but not triggered a lot. So they get the physiological uh, reaction and move the sense of the physiological reaction from the complex narrative. So if you can pull those apart, you can now, I believe, uh, progress. And yeah. this is what we're learning. So a lot of uh, the music, uh, music was an intervention, but was never designed to be an intervention unto itself. It was designed to be, quote, a state shifter, to move the state of the individual, to make them more accessible to the work, to the therapy. And there's been interesting buy-in from somatic-oriented therapists, because it, it works real well in their modalities, because they focus on what's happening in the body. So they build on the psychoeducational platform of being able to shift those physiological states. Right, right, right. So, yes, there is that challenge to, to have a person let go of that hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. If we go back to uh, my example of a person going into a mm -hmm. meeting a social situation, one of the things that I coach uh, a person like that is I, first of all, explain how they influence the people inside by their voice and their facial expression. So I coach them to take a moment before they go in to take a few breaths and to get into a calmer state and to change as best as they can their mindset yeah. of expectation to help them go in and express themselves a little bit differently. And then I'll do some dress rehearsals to help them prepare for it. Um, uh, and so the goal is for them to come in and, and give different signals uh, to the people that they come in contact with. Yeah, well, the dress rehearsal concept, is it's a psychoeducational. You're basically preparing them for their own bodily reactions and, mm -hmm. and explain and deconstruct it. In a sense, what polyvagal theory gave to many therapists and many uh, survivors of trauma was a script. It was saying, look, this is very predictable. Therefore, you're not nuts. And if it's predictable, how can we work with it? Right, right, right. Well, this is a fascinating subject, Stephen. I'm so uh, happy that we had this, uh, having this opportunity. Um, we have just a couple more minutes left. Um, can you give any other kinds of uh, suggestions in terms of how a person, particularly someone who grew up perhaps in a dangerous childhood yeah. environment, can help themselves go more into this place of balance, uh, get, in, get into a place where they feel a sense of safety? Mm. I talked about people finding islands of safety yeah. in their day, in their lives. 
how about you? What are your? Well, I I would basically say the same thing that uh, I I will tell you that when I was a youngster, I came up with a model that I called the uh, uh, closed tree model of mental health, which was basically uh, uh, the closed tree had to be in a closet. It was the idea that you could create a safe environment of something very small, mm-hmm. but that could be your visualization and the close tree was what you're going to hang on that in that safe place. And I think many therapies have that type of model as an expanding model. But the core is what you're really saying is if I can get a visualization of safety, if I get a visualization that enables me to self-regulate, I'm I'm partially there. You know, I, I can build on that. And this was a question that I have asked some of my colleagues who work with foster children and who basically are in such uh their developmental history is so disrupted or dysregulatory because there was no one in their lives for many of them that they could trust so the visualizations are hard to build and they are working on it. it's a very hard population to work with because of exactly what you're saying they they don't have the mental images of what a safe experience is so in a sense in my uh naive clinical mode i'm not a i'm not a therapist but my naive clinical mode is always to ask people what do they like to do what gives them a smile on their face and that's your hint about where that personal safe space the ability to to self-regulate can come from Mm -hmm. right right and you know one of the things that i do is biofeedback which is you know, training people to go more into that parasympathetic mode. And, you know, some people really struggle with being able to, on their own, being able to do that. And so you really need those kinds of approaches. Well, biofeedback, because what you're really focusing on, a lot of it is, because you brought up earlier, was breath. And that is when we exhale slowly, we are literally giving our nervous system permission of the vagal break to come on to calm us down Mm -hmm. but if we're in dangerous environments do we want the vagal break to come on the vagal break is literally our enemy because it gets in the way of recruiting our metabolic resources our energy to fight so the efficient way of being in a dangerous environment is to get that system out of there so we have permission to defend ourselves so it's not just it's hard for people it's that their nervous system doesn't want to be calm, even though they may be coming in for therapy. Mm-hmm. There, there's part of them that is literally wedded to the state that they're in. It's predictable right. and it has succeeded in keeping them alive. And the nervous system basically has this, uh, excuse the term, moral belief system that their survival is everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a very simple approach would be number one, find some way of getting into a place state in mm-hmm. which you feel safe yeah and then engage in some of this very slow exhale breath yeah. that will help you move more into that uh parasympathetic mode to help you uh in this process of balance and build on that is that when you go into that mode use the interoceptive uh, skill set where you now describe those feelings and expand on that because 
uh, a lot of people are pretty numb to their own bodies. And again, for a person like me, that's always been a shock. But you start realizing that a lot of people just don't have those feelings. And I wrote a paper, which I will share with you and with the uh, summit uh, registers or participants. It's called Polyvagal Theory, A Science of Safety. And the whole goal of that paper was to move feelings of safety into an objective, uh, concrete level that it couldn't be dismissed because we tend to say, oh, that's your feelings. It, and it doesn't have any validity. But what I try to say in the paper is that when we have feelings of safety, feelings of safety are a natural derivative of our autonomic nervous system being a state that supports homeostasis mm-hmm. and feelings of fear are really derivative of our home of our autonomic nervous system disrupting homeostasis so in states of fear we don't heal and we don't recover right right and however one wants to approach this it's a it's a process it's a developmental process you can't just automatically find it but any effort i say any effort that you take that moves you in that direction you build on that you, you're mentioning a couple of very important things. Effort is basically it's internet intentionality. It's something I want to do. Right. And the other point is that it's not a prosthesis. We're not replacing. We are exercising. We're recruiting. And uh, the whole, the whole notion of even like vagal nerve stimulation is really sold more as a prosthesis versus biofeedback, which is a neural exercise. So neural exercises are ways that our nervous system learns to be more resilient and more flexible. And we don't need the stimulation on all the time. The system now has that capacity. And this is the whole theme of our discussion. And that is to enhance the nervous system's ability to regulate and heal itself. And that when that nervous system is disrupted to deal with challenges which are valid challenges often of threat it needs time to recover and go back into its healing mode and it can only do that efficiently if it absorbs or receives the appropriate template of cues of safety right well that's a great way of summarizing uh, which i appreciate and it it also gives the audience um, a direction and some things that they could be thinking about in terms of this whole important area which i think is at the heart of aging and and longevity because how your nervous system functions really is so important to inflammation and Mm -hmm. immune system functioning now one one final comment on that is that in a sense aging is a disruption of our fluidity of recovering into homeostasis so the the issue is with aging there's actually a, a a less of a flexibility of the system. But as we age, we have to be appreciative of that. And then what that realizes that we may need more time to recover. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, Stephen, again, thank you so much for joining me, joining us on our summit. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for the, the article that you will yeah. provide and any other materials. Um, which will certainly be helpful in this process for our audience. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. It's nice to see you again. It's been a long time, and I hope I know. to see you face-to-face yes. again. Right, right. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care, diagnosis or treatment, or the creation of a physician-patient or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously, so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next time.